so that to me was a thread. That was the story waiting to be told. That was Delon Zeno. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am happy to be joined by Taylor Brown, the author of Wing Walkers. And even Zena, Zeno and, and Della joke sometimes almost about the idea that they can't go back to the same place where they did a show because people are almost disappointed that they're still alive because it's such death-defying feats. Taylor Brown grew up on the Georgia coast. His work has appeared in a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, The Rumpus, Garden and Gun, Chautauqua, the North Carolina Literary Review, and many others. He is the recipient of the Montana Prize in Fiction, a three-time finalist for the Southern Book Prize, and was named the 2021 Georgia Author of the Year. He is the author of a short story collection, as well as five novels. Taylor, an Eagle Scout, graduated from the University of Georgia in 2005. He settled in Savannah, Georgia after long stints in Buenos Aires, San Francisco, and the mountains and coasts of North Carolina. He is the editor-in-chief of Bikebound.com, and he likes old motorcycles, thunderstorms, and dogs with beards. Today, I'll be talking to him about his novel, Wing Walkers. Okay, well, I'd like to start with barnstormers. What is a barnstormer or a wing walker? And I mean, when did you become familiar with this practice? So funny enough, my dad was a pilot. And when I was a kid, someone had given the family a gift of these timeline epic of light series books. And one of them was called Barnstormers and Speed Kings. And I've since, we don't have it anymore, like as a family, but I tracked down, you know, an older copy and bought it. But I must have picked it off the shelf when I was five or six years old. And it was filled with all these black and white photographs from basically, you know, 1918, World War One up through the Great Depression. This was a huge thing because, um, you know, you could buy a World War One surplus aircraft for really cheap. And you had all these pilots that had been trained, but the war had ended pretty soon after we got into it. And they use their flying skills to basically go from county fair to barnyard to air show and perform these kind of death-defying stunts, stunts, including wing walking, um, as a way to you know get people to come out and either pay money to see the show or more um, more commonly to um, go for ride, pay to go for rides after the show. Cause a lot of people at the time, you know, had never seen an airplane or had certainly never flown in an airplane. Um, so it was cheap entertainment, you know, from, uh, up through the roaring twenties and into the, into the great depression. And it just fast, it probably it must've fascinated me, you know, it must've stuck in my head when I was five or six years old. Cause it's always been with me 
And it only was later when I kind of rediscovered that book that I realized how it must have gotten in there, you know? Um, but, you know, I have these crazy photos of people hanging by their teeth from the undercarriage or, you know, grabbing hats off the ground as they hang from the wing or acting like they're playing tennis on the top wing of a biplane. I mean, it was really wild time. No, no parachutes, no, uh, tethers or anything like that, like you would see today. Um, and, um, you know, I guess this was, you know, obviously long before the days of even much TV or, um, YouTube, Netflix and whatnot, you know, we got our, um, our, our thirst for kind of action movies was in, in real life maybe, you know? So, um, I've just been fascinated by it for a long time. Well, I was researching for this interview. I, I wanted to know more about barnstorming, and I was very curious as when when it came about, when it ended. Um, so it seems the federal government took a little bit of time to catch up with what was going on, and they they passed some regulations, I think, in 1929 from what I Googled. But I'm curious, um, how was it able to continue into the Great Depression even after those regulations? I think even after those regulations, it was... Um the enforcement of those had not caught up with the regulations that were put in place. Um, and people learned to adapt to a lot of those regulations. So even up into the great depression, you had, um, a lot of this taking place, you know, the main one for the, um, in the book, you know, the kind of climactic one is at the opening of the Shushan airport in new Orleans in 1934, which is now the lakefront airport. Um, and it was a huge spectacle. They opened it during Mardi Gras, and they had the Pan American Air Races, and they had a big air show with a lot of barnstorming. And there were multiple, you know, fatalities during this. So it was still really being pushed and going on because it was, you know, there was a lot of money being made behind the air races and these air shows. A lot of companies that were pushing the airplanes, you know, that were being developed very quickly. And so there was a whole industry kind of maybe pushing in the other direction against a lot of those regulations too, if that makes sense. I read also about well, what inspired you to write this story. Um, so can you, can you, for our listeners, can you tell us what inspired you? And then I'm also curious, you, you talked about your background in aviation or your family's background, and then you, you also have a, a connection to, to Faulkner, the writer. Um, do you feel like this was a story you were destined to tell? It absolutely, not every book has felt that way, but certainly this book did feel that way. Um, it really started for me in 2016. I was at, uh, I was on my first book tour for Fallen Land, and I was in Oxford, Mississippi for the Oxford Conference for the book. And after my event the next day, I really kind of had the day off to explore town. I went to Roanoke, and I spent a bunch of time in Square Books in Oxford, which you know, to me was already this story bookstore full of all this history, you know, the walls are covered and all this literary memorabilia. And on the staircase landing, I came across this shadow box on the wall that had a photo of Faulkner in it. And I was used to seeing, I was already a big fan of Faulkner from way back from my college days or even late high school days, but I'd never seen this photo it was, you know, we're used to seeing photos of him with, you know, the pipe and, you know, grayish white hair and looking very distinguished kind of, um, older, you know, of the age of someone that would win the Nobel prize if they had, if he hadn't already. And in this photo, he, he looked almost like a kid. I mean, he looked like he was barely out of his teens and he was dressed in his 
uh, in a flying uniform, his RAF uniform. And he cut a pretty rakish figure. He had his flying cap kind of cocked on all bold, and he had a rattan cane, and he had um, a little hand-rolled cigarette sticking out the corner of his mouth. And it kind of came back to me how a lot of his early work was full of aviation. Uh, soldiers pay, a lot of the short stories, um, you know, Sartorus slash Flags in the Dust. Um, had a lot of aviation in them, and I didn't really know why. I knew there were some anecdotes about his time in the RAF, and it just struck me, you know, struck a chord with me, I guess. So I started delving into it and started picking up biographies, um, the memoirs of his brothers, who were all pilots, um, and I found that he had been a great fan of aviation, lover of aviation as I had been growing up. My dad was a pilot and I was what my dad would call a waffle belly. And a waffle belly was a kid who um, just loves to go to the airport and watch the airplanes take off and land. And the idea being that, you know, if you stand at the fence long enough, kind of holding onto the chain link fence, you become a, a waffle belly. It imprints itself on you. Um, but that was a huge thing for me growing up. Can we go to the airport and look at the airplanes? You know, that was a, one of the main ways that I spent time with my dad as a kid. And so I've already felt this affinity with Faulkner because he was a, he was an author I really felt some affinity with. And then to learn that there was this, he had such a love of aviation and yet was not a pilot until much later. It was really, a, you know, a thing that he aspired to. And obviously you'll learn in the book, you know, told a lot of tall tales about his flying exploits that weren't, uh, you know, quite true. When those two things came together, it was one of those times when it felt like I was born to write this. Um, and I felt very lucky to be in that place. And I just took off with it, if that makes sense, and um, wrote like a house on fire. Well, talk about um, the moment you came up with these barnstorming characters, Della and Zeno. And I'm also curious, um, what kind of research did you do around you know the the fictional characters of Della and Zena in order in order to you know create a realistic depiction of barnstormers during that time so Della and Zena really this is kind of how it worked out is I was looking up all this information about Faulkner and I was finding all these anecdotes this you know there were times where I felt like I was uncovering buried treasure almost I mean these stories of you know, the balloonatic, this hot air balloonist that would come to town in Oxford every year with a homemade hot air balloon and parachute out of it with a homemade parachute. And one year, you know, landed on their hen house and, you know, Faulkner is a boy building this model airplane out of bean poles and stolen wrapping paper and trying to launch it off a bluff behind the house. I mean, there were all these anecdotes that were just amazing that were his life from this aviation perspective. But I didn't have a novel, really. I didn't want to write something just from his perspective or some kind of nonfiction autobiographical take on or approach to his life or his work from an aviation angle. That had kind of been done by PhD candidates and scholars and stuff like that. But I felt like there was some thread, there was some story waiting to be told that would thread through all of this. And I found it in chapter 36 of the Blotner biography, which is the big definitive three-volume 
um, who knows how many hundred pages, 600 page, I think, tome about Faulkner's life. I found this little tiny tidbit, and it was about when he went to the opening of the Shushan Airport in 1934 in New Orleans, or Mardi Gras, that Saturday night he didn't come home uh, to stay with the friends that were, that were hosting him. And when he turned up the next morning, it said he told this, he turned up hungover, and over breakfast he told this wild tale of the night that he spent with two motorcyclists, a man and a woman, who were aviators at the meet, and he'd spent the night drinking, flying, and carousing with them. And I could find, and so I was immediately, of course, interested, who were, who were this man and woman, um, these aviators from the meet slash motorcyclists, and what was their history and what kind of night did they have together? And I could find nothing else about them and all the, you know, biographical, historical literature out there. So that to me was a thread. That was the story waiting to be told. That was Delon Zeno. Um, or who became Delon Zeno to me. I started imagining who were these folks and how did their lives come to intersect with Faulkner's and what were the consequences of that. And this was one of those times when they came to me pretty quickly because I had also been doing, while I was learning about Faulkner's life from an aviation angle, I had started um, researching barnstorming and wing walking, reading a lot of the historical material out there. And there's a lot, you know, aviation is pretty well documented. Um, so that helps. So there's a lot of books out there about barnstorming and wing walking and, you know, the, the kind of luminaries from that era, um, as well as all the long distance flyers, you know, everyone from Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, and, and so many others that are kind of lost to mainstream knowledge, but are pretty well documented. So I had a pretty good background in it, and it helped me to create who they were. But I have to say it was one of those times when they came to me pretty quickly and they seemed full-fledged in some ways. Um, and that was a gift. You know, sometimes it seems like you get a gift. Sometimes it's like banging your head against the wall and you don't know who really who the characters are until you're pretty deep into the work or something. You're trying to still find that. Um, they came to me pretty quickly in chapter one, I have to say. Um, and they seemed to stand up on their own two feet pretty quickly and, and, for me and kind of um, be who they were. Uh, one thing that struck me was just how difficult it was for them to raise money um, in order to travel West. Now, obviously it was during the great depression times were hard for everybody, but they really had to work hard for very little. Was that just a product of the Great Depression, or were they exploited in, in some sense um, by the, the larger companies? I think that the way that I saw it, at least in their scenario, it was less that they were being exploited, and, and it was two things. One, it's the Great Depression, so people don't have the disposable income to spend you know, on going on airplane rides and that kind of thing, number one. Number two, they now this has been going on for well over a decade, right? So a lot of people have seen it by now, right? The, the, the aviation craze is dying off a little bit because a lot of people have seen an airplane and have flown in an airplane and their airplane is an old one that's a little bit dilapidated, out of date. You know, it, it's still made out of wood and, and wire and linen, you know, and now metal airplanes are coming out, multi-engine airplanes, airplanes that are much faster, so they're really 
becoming obsolete, I think, in some ways, right? Like the world is kind of moving on past where they are and they don't have the, you know, finances exactly to keep up with it, right? So they have realized that they're, they have in some ways an expiration date. And this was a, this was a real thing, you know, barnstorming really started to die off a lot more during the Great Depression. One, because of the regulations that you talked about starting around 1929, the civil, you know, aviation administration and a lot more regulations around that. And then just people had seen it, you know, and they're not willing to spend as much money for it because they've seen it before. And even Zena, Zeno and, and Della joke sometimes almost about the idea that they can't go back to the same place where they did a show because people are almost disappointed that they're still alive because it's such death-defying feats. You know, you go back to the same big, ta- you know, how many big towns can you go to in the South and, you know, do your show? They've seen it before. If they saw you three years ago, they're kind of, in some ways, sometimes it seems as if they're disappointed that they're still able to be still doing it because it seems so death-defying. It's like, how could you have survived this long? Um, So in all these multiple ways, I think that they are, have really begun to feel that they are being squeezed out, right? They are um, obsolete as a lot of people at that time are feeling, right? Like the, the jobs aren't there. Machines have taken over for a lot of things. Um, and so in their own different way, you know, they're privileged in that they have an aircraft and that they are not as nailed to the ground as a lot of people are, uh, so to speak. But, um, I think that they're dealing with a lot of the same issues that the rest of the country is dealing with. Hey, listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction and the author of Resisting Removal, The Sandy Lake Tragedy of 1850. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about my book. Resisting Removal tells the tragic and inspiring story of the Lake Superior Ojibwe, who, in 1850, were told by U.S. government officials that they had to remove from their homelands. The Ojibwe refused, but Minnesota Territorial Governor Alexander Ramsey tried to force their removal, which resulted in the death of 400 Ojibwe at Sandy Lake. Over the following years, the Ojibwe resisted removal, eventually earning permanent reservation homes on their homeland where they still live today. This unfortunate, lesser-known event in American history really exemplifies the lengths U.S. officials went to claim Native lands. It is a thoroughly researched novel that includes a bibliography and chapter notes that distinguish for the reader what's fact and what's fiction. It's an important story, and I hope you'll check it out. So right now, you can get $5 off Resisting Removal or any of our titles in our online store using the promo code PODCAST. That's promo code PODCAST. Thank you so much for listening, and now please enjoy the rest of the interview. Do you see any similarities between Della and Zeno and William Faulkner in in just their determination to chase their dreams? I think so, for sure. You know, this idea came to me during the writing of the book that there was such a 
and this is, it's so funny because, you know, we would like to think sometimes that authors have these grand ideas or something before they write books. And, you know, these symbols or themes or motifs are intentional, but a lot of it, it's to me is discovered along the way. Um, and one thing I discovered was this kind of parallel between what Zeno and especially Della does, you know, Della being the wing walker, she's out there on the wing, so vulnerable for everyone to see no parachute, no safety net. If she falls, everyone's going to watch it, right? There's such a enormous, she's on such a precarious stage, right? Um, that in some ways, I think that I saw a parallel with Faulkner and also with just writers in general. You know, we put our hearts out there on the page and then we send this book off into the world for everyone to have their opinion about it and to tell you what their opinion is and to tell you whether they think you did a good job or not. You know, in some ways, this idea that we put our hearts out there on the wing, right? We put ourselves up there for everyone to kind of see our insides in a very vulnerable and and um in some ways it feels very precarious you know it feels there's times when it feels like a daredevilry to do this to do what we do right um and that was a parallel that i i kind of found through the writing process in a way in which i felt that faulkner and della especially have there's a real parallel there, a real affinity or kinship or, or something there. And can you talk a little more about Faulkner's path? Because I, I admittedly, I, I didn't know a lot about his background. Um, but then I read about all the rejection he went through to the point that he, he's, he didn't want to make any concessions to make his books, um, commercialized he didn't want to to fit the the literary marketplace he wanted to write what he wanted to write and he was going to do that and eventually he won the pulitzer prize and and the nobel prize in literature um can you talk a little bit about uh his personality that way and and his determination to just be the storyteller that he wanted to be you nailed it with one of the things that really drew me to faulkner because i didn't really realize this i was familiar with faulkner's work but not who he was and I think a lot of us, we, you know, Faulkner, we lump him in with the other American modernists, you know, um, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, but, you know, Gertrude Stein and Virginia Woolf, but especially compared to, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and these other male American modernists, Faulkner was such an outsider. And I think we've lost sight of that, right? You know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald are in 1920s Paris, and they know they're part of the avant-garde. They are are getting all this acclaim as their books come out. Here's Faulkner, home in Oxford. His father says he writes smut. His uncle says he won't amount to anything. Around town, he's called Count No Count. He's really not taken seriously, even as his books are being published in New York and read in France and re reviewed well. He's at home fighting rejection, not only all the rejection that he faced in the marketplace, but continuing rejection in his community, which is a lot closer to home, obviously. And in some ways I found really endearing or inspiring in some kind of ways. It felt, it's, I had this sense that he was fighting against such a headwind. He was really 
trying to wade upstream. And that helped to, I think, make him into the kind of stubborn artist that he was, that was less compromising about bending his books to suit the marketplace. Because he had dealt with it so much already, he just wasn't going to do it. Um, And I think that in some ways, I found that a very heroic thing. And maybe that is something that um, I wanted to communicate to the folks out there who don't really know that about Faulkner. And then there was another side to him that I found even more endearing, which is that he was such a kind of mischievous rascal about things. You know, I mean, when his poetry wasn't getting rejected left and right, he started doing things like copying out famous poems and sending them off to the big literary journals and getting them rejected. So I remember, you know, he, he sent off Coleridge's Kublai Khan to the New Republic, and they came back and said, you know, something along the lines that we're very sor- sorry, Mr. Coleridge, but we just feel this poem goes nowhere. You know, but he was just really kind of a, a, a rascal about things. And then all the stories of his tall tales of his flying exploits, you know, we know that he did not uh, earn his wings. He was in the RAF, certainly, and he went to training in Toronto on Lake Toronto at Cadet Wing. But the war ended before he earned his wings. But he comes home to Oxford in an officer's uniform, affecting a limp, telling people he has a silver plate in his head, you know, the only medal they gave me, and telling all these tales of his flying exploits, which were certainly not, uh, which were certainly highly embellished. But it seemed to me that it was almost as if his imagination was just too big for the reality of his own life, as maybe it is for a lot of artists and certainly those tales made their way directly into his early work um so there were just a couple of those couple of sides to Faulkner that I really didn't know even though I was a big fan of his work had studied it pretty closely in college um and would have told anyone that he was one of my favorite authors but I really didn't know him in that way until I delved into this and then it excited me to try to express or communicate or show to folks a little bit more who he was. Can you talk about your own career path? Um, You're quite an accomplished author, many awards, um, and you have new books coming out all the time. Um, What was it like for you getting to this point in your career? I think that one thing that I found really inspiring as I was doing the research on Faulkner was this idea that, you know, I, you look at famous legendary canonical authors of the past. And in some ways, I think maybe we think that their lives were easy and they were just instant overnight successes and they were just geniuses from the beginning. And anyone who has had at least my experience on the outside, it looks like I've had a lot of success and I, have and I'm very fortunate and blessed and thankful for that but I also know that the flip side of it is how much rejection I faced to get there and how hard it was and how hard it continues to be and how much rejection I continue to face which is not really in the public eye the public sees the books come out 
sees the good reviews, sees the successes, but you don't see the dark, cold, rat-infested houses where you wrote in doubt and a whole lot of pain, you know, for months and you didn't, you're just living day to day. The public doesn't see how much doubt we still deal with at whatever stage of career you're in and how much rejection we still deal with. Maybe not at the same, it's, it changes, you know, but you have rejection from your own agent or from your own editor or from critics once the book already comes out. It's not an, at least for me, it's ne- it is not easy and it has not gotten any easier. Nor did I really expect it to, I think. But I found it empowering, encouraging, and inspiring to see that it was that way for Faulkner and it probably was for every other artist that we still read or still look at their work or that we highly value and respect. Although from the outside and from that distance of time, it looks like things were probably easy for them. It was probably quite the opposite. And it certainly was for Faulkner. You know, it was rejection after rejection, both romantically, uh, critically, uh, in the marketplace, in his hometown. I mean, it was just, you know, one thing after another. Publishers going bankrupt, you know, financial woes, going to Hollywood to make enough money to try to support you know, his family and, and that kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of one thing after another. Um, and so on a personal level, I was really feeling that. When I started to write this book, just to get, maybe this is too much information, but I'll get, you know, I, I'd i like, I'll put it out there. You know, when I started writing this book was 2016, my first novel, Fallen Land, had come out. So it was a couple months you know, like I said, I was on my first, I was on the book tour when I discovered that photo. So it's pretty quickly after that, I started working on this. And I had been working on getting a novel published for my whole life, basically, and especially working very diligently, grinding at it for the last 10 years. So I had achieved the dream that I had set for myself. And I was about 30, I think I was 33. And it was amazing. And yet at the same time, I found myself feeling very alone. I kind of lived a very almost monastic existence, very focused, trying to make this dream happen. And when it did happen, I felt very alone. I had no one to share it with. I found myself not in a a really good place. And I found that Faulkner had been in that place multiple times. And that kind of gave me strength as I was working on it, that I wasn't the first person to feel this way. And that there were some parallels uh, for any artist, you know? Um, and all that was ended up going into the work, I think. Well, it definitely takes a lot of perseverance. And, you know, just, just from interviewing authors for this podcast, it's always a question I ask is about their journey. And um, they all pretty much parallel each other. Um, so it, it definitely takes some perseverance, some thick skin, but congratulations on, on how far you've gotten and, and just um, the, not just your journey, but being able to, like you said, put it out there um, for, for readers to, to judge and and then have a story, have a story for them to um, that, that, that's been brought to life. I mean, just, just speaking for myself, 
I never would have known anything about Faulkner's background or about Barnstormers um, if I hadn't been made aware of your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and I think that I have to say that one of the things that has was a big part of my kind of education in being a writer, I don't have an MFA, but what I did was I listened to all these author interviews. So exactly what you're doing was a huge part of my education. I found a database, which is now, last time I checked it had disappeared largely from being online, but I found a database of author interviews years ago from a man named Don Swain, who had a book called, um, or had a show, a, a radio show called Wired for Books. And he interviewed, for over 20 years, he interviewed everybody, it seemed like, from you know Robert Ludlum to Joyce Carol Oates to um, you know, just about anyone you could think of, he interviewed. Thriller writers, mystery writers, literary writers, however you want to box them or label them, he interviewed just about everyone, sometimes multiple times. And there, and he always asked them about their journey. And that made me aware of what level of perseverance it would take and gave me the right expectations, I think. And I found that a huge, huge part of my education as a writer and probably the single most important thing that I learned along the way that, that helped me to keep going, if that makes sense. So what you're doing now is carrying that legacy on to me, you know, interviewing writers about their stories. I just, you know, it feels very important to me. Well, thank you. Yeah, you never know. Um, perhaps we're inspiring the next generation of, of writers right now. Um, I, I didn't want to end the, end the interview without asking you about, did you ever think about becoming a pilot? Do you think that was what, what you would be? I absolutely, when I was growing up, you know, at various times in my life, you know, there were long periods of time when I was a kid that it was just known that I would be a pilot. I mean, that was just expected. Um, as I got a little bit older, my dad actually dissuaded me a little bit because the airline industry was not what it had been. You know, the benefits were what they had been. It was much more competitive and tough in that industry. Um, and the way in that made a lot of sense was to go in through the military, which I couldn't qualify for because I was born with club feet. So it would have to be a thing where we would have to pay for all the flight school and stuff, which is really, really, you know, expensive. Um, and so it didn't really work out in that way. Um, and I'm glad my life worked out the way that it has. I still have the dream of learning to fly in terms of, you know, a, a, a regular uh, pilot's license. And I had grand dreams of it, honestly, um, we moved to Savannah in late 2019, and Savannah is a great aviation town. Gulfstream is based here. There's a neat little airport in Georgetown that has all these vintage planes and tail draggers, exactly the kind of stuff I like, and I know one of the pilots that's heavily involved in that community. And so I've really had the ends, the relationships here to start pursuing that. And then um, when COVID came about, obviously that kind of put the the jaws on that, both from the perspective of, you know, being in a, the issues of being in a small craft with, you know, an instructor uh, multiple times a week. And also, you know, we were squeezed financially in a way that, you know, learning to fly is not cheap. 
continuing to fly is not cheap. And certainly for me at this stage in life, it is only a luxury that I just couldn't afford now. So um, hopefully enough people will really like wing walkers and buy it that I'll be a little more comfortable with pursuing that dream um, in the future because it is a dream that, that, you know, I have, I'm about to turn 40 and, um, you know, it's not a midlife crisis thing. It's the thing I've been wanting to do. You know, I had a quarter life crisis when I was in my twenties and I almost quit my, you know, desk job and went back to flight school to learn to be a helicopter pilot. Um, so, you know, this is not new for me in terms of that. Um, so it's still a dream that's with me that I hope to, um, to really pursue, uh, in the future. Well, it's definitely worth um, holding on to, definitely worth pursuing. Can you tell us what you're working on next, what your next project is? Yes. I've, uh, I'm working on a couple different things. The main thing I'm working on is set uh, in West Virginia in the 1920s um, uh, with the West Virginia Coal Wars. Um, it's a miners' uprising, based on a true story, a miners' uprising, this battle that happened in West Virginia that has kind of been lost to history. Um, it's really fascinating, I think. Um, it has, it's a story that largely hasn't been told, and I've been lucky enough to kind of have an insider's uh, perspective into it in that one of my... my closest reader slash freelance editor slash creative collaborator is a guy named Jason Fry who lives in Wilmington, North Carolina, where I used to live and one of my best friends. And he's from Logan County, West Virginia, where all this history took place. And he has been kind of feeding me the stories and the lore of it for years and saying how it would make a great book and and all these things. So I really started working on it uh, a few years ago and that's starting uh, to come to fruition now. So that's, that's the next one um, in the pipeline. And then I've got some other stuff I'm working on too, but a little bit farther out. So not as quite as, you know, comfortable talking about it. Sure. Well, that, that sounds like a great um, novel and we'll look forward to that. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun and congratulations on, on Wing Walkers. And yeah, thanks. This has been great talking to you today. Same here. Thanks so much, Colin. I really appreciate it.